Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daniel Vincent, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. You can find us and other shows at reformpodcast.com. Also, check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you're watching on our YouTube channel, or if you haven't found our YouTube channel yet, go check it out on YouTube, The Particular Baptist. Hit the subscribe button and hit the bell so you can be notified of when we go live or new videos go up. So today, uh, well, first of all, um, I want to say that uh, Sean will actually be coming back next week on our show. We're going to be actually on another podcast next week, but um, hopefully if um, that brother who's hosting that podcast is gracious enough, um, I'll try to uh, see if we can get try to upload our uh, episode that we do with him on our channels so that we can um, make sure we have an episode up that week. So Sean should be coming back and I think he'll be back for the foreseeable future. I don't know what his uh, school schedule is going to be like, so we'll see. Um, so no more writing solo for a while. Um, but today we're going to be talking about Jeff Johnson again. Um, as some of you probably know, we dealt with Jeff Johnson in his book that I have right here. Um, there we go. Failure of natural theology, um, a critical appraisal of the philosophical theology of Thomas Aquinas. So we're back dealing with him again today um, as it relates to his, one of his newer books that have come out. Uh, and it's kind of, I think, a follow up to this book. Um, but I think this conversation that I'm going to be having today is actually timely because of all of the uh, buzz surrounding Sola Scriptura right now. Uh, in the reform community, as uh, many of you should know who are reformed, sola scriptura is the doctrine that scripture is the final authority of faith and practice. And notice I said final authority, I didn't say only authority. It is our final ultimate authority in faith and practice, but it allows for secondary sources and helps what we would call secondary authorities um, that God has given his church to be able to help us to understand the scriptures and to be able to, um, you know, flesh out what the scriptures are teaching with scripture being the preeminent authority over all of those things. Um, but it's hard to believe that this is, this is even a, a area of confusion for people, uh, that, that there are those who call themselves confessional and reform who have no clue what this is or seemingly so anyways, um, or just don't care. But it, it there's just diff, there's these differing views of what this is floating around in um, the, the reform community. And I mean, you, you, if you're on Twitter and you're in these conversations, you can see how this has blown up. Um, and it is sad to see how um, things like this have become divisive uh, in a negative sense. But at the same time, we have to stand for truth and we have to stand firm on what uh, the scriptures teach, and that scripture is our final authority, and what that really means, not only biblically, but also historically. What does that look like? What did those who came before us, who established our confessions, who were Reformed and Protestant, what did that community, at least by and large, uh, understand Sola Scriptura to mean? So this has really been coming around the block again with this discussion. Um, and this really, you know, this this issue has been dealt with before by other brothers and um, has been reemphasized, thankfully, 
So I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but I hope that my response to Jeff's book today maybe can provide a different angle on it. Um, since I haven't seen any responses to um, Jeff's second book, there may have been, but I haven't seen any. So maybe this can kind of um, bring a unique perspective to it, even though I'm really going to be dealing with the same concepts. Um, just the fact that I'm addressing his book uh, might kind of bring a different angle to it. So a little bit of background on on, on this new book from Jeff. Um, it's called uh, Saving Natural Theology from Thomas Aquinas. And it's really a, a small booklet, I think. It's not very long. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. I bought it on Kindle, I think, for like $3. It's, it's really cheap, really, really short work. Um, and as we know from this book, his first book, uh, Jeff is not a fan of natural theology, is purported by Thomas Aquinas. Um, and I feel like the second work is, I think it's probably more of a clarification or maybe even a, a backtracking uh, from his last work. Um, maybe it's probably trying to, it, it seems like it was trying to clarify what he said in his first book. Although I don't find his second work to really be, uh, I don't think it's really consistent with uh, the first book. It almost seems like he's he's really trying to make some adjustments. Um, could be wrong about that, but that's how it seems to me um, from having read it. Um, so the second book, really, it really regurgitates principles that are found in his last book, um, but there are some nuances. Um, he, I think the first nuance is that he seems to try to redeem natural theology, which he didn't seem to do in his last book. Um, if you look at chapter one, which is called Natural Theology's Dilemma, this is from the last book, The Failure of Natural Theology. I'm just going to read a little bit here. This is, gives some overall context of where we're coming from here. This is from page 16. He says, philosophy and natural theology, on the other hand, have the opposite characteristics of natural revelation. Natural theology is not universally effectively, immediately, consistently, and infallibly communicated from above. Rather than originating from the mind of God, natural theology originates from the mind of man. Natural theology is man's attempt to discover the truth about God through empirical and rational analysis and philosophical speculation. Consequently, because natural theology is not universally and immediately understood, it doesn't leave anyone, uh, let, excuse me, doesn't leave everyone without excuse. But above all, natural theology is not infallible. <clears throat> and this is the opening uh, paragraph to a section called The Characteristics of Natural Theology. And this is after he has established um, the positive aspects of natural revelation. And he's contrasting between natural revelation, which really is these things, universal, effective, immediate, consistent, infallible, and contrasting um, that uh, allegedly the, the only real good standard with natural theology, which is bad, which is really formulated in the mind of man. Um, and he, he kind of sort of tries to, it seems he tries to make kind of a qualification on page 17. He says, yet philosophy and natural theology, at least as defined by Aquinas, reject this starting point. And that has to do with what he was talking about with natural theology. So it's like he's saying, well, at least with what Aquinas said is problematic as it relates to natural theology. But he's not necessarily um, only talking about Aquinas's view of natural theology. So it's, 
it, it's not easy to see if he's really qualifying um, that limiting it to Aquinas's view or not. Um, if you read this chapter, you get a sense that he's broad brushing natural theology um, because of the contrast that he makes between natural revelation as a concept and natural theology as a concept. Um, so that's just a little bit of backtrack to give some context about where we're coming from here. But we jump forward to his new book um, in the uh, Saving Natural Theology for Thomas Aquinas. And this is from the Kindle edition. Uh, all of my quotations here are from the Kindle edition, by the way. Uh, he says, quote, and this is from, I think this might be the opening statement of his book. He says, I am not convinced that natural theology as a theological discipline can be saved. I don't even know if it's a good idea to try to rescue it. Natural theology is closely linked to classical apologetics, and classical apologetics, due to the influence of Thomas Aquinas, is so interwoven with Greek philosophy that such associations may never be broken. That's from page six of the Kindle edition. So, and, and this presents kind of a, a seeming inconsistency because, like I said, he rails against natural theology in his first book and then seems to try to kind of sort of maybe redeem it in his second book although it doesn't seem like he's convinced that that's even possible but he at least opens up um the possibility that that might you know that that might be the case and then on page seven of that book he says presuppositionalists like myself are not Against the body of doctrine communicated in natural revelation, we are against pagan philosophers who have suppressed, twisted, and perverted what has been communicated in natural revelation. Greek philosophers did not confess the God of natural revelation. Far from it. They rejected what they knew in their hearts by attempting to formulate their own explanation of God. They deny God's independence from the universe and his personal presence within the universe. And it's important to understand that Jeff is coming at this from a Vantilian perspective, at least I, I think it's his probably his own version of presuppositionalism, um, which is, I think, kind of a an extreme of, of Vantilianism. But he would identify as a presuppositionalist. Um, so this gives us some important backdrop, I think, for our discussion today. Um and what I'm going to be focusing on in this book, I'm not going to be going through the whole book. I'm not going to be even starting. This isn't a book review. I'm focusing on a particular chapter in the book, chapter five, called The Apostle Paul's Rejection of Greek Philosophy. And I want to talk about this because um, amidst this whole buzz around Solar Scriptura, not only has Aquinas been discussed, but also just the concept or the role of philosophy as it relates to uh, theology and uh, how philosophy plays into theology. That's also been a buzz around. So this will be focusing on the philosophical side, not really focusing on Aquinas, although he's going to be used as part of uh, the discussion today. So just some, just some opening remarks before we dive in. Number one, uh, we need to have a proper understanding of discernment before we start nuking an opposing view. And what I mean by nuking is just completely... Uh, writing off the other side without any qualification, just writing it off. I don't want it, nuking it, right? And, and I think having a proper understanding of discernment and proper discernment will help us to ensure we're not broad brushing a position. Um, and we also need to be introspective and check to see, 
are we doing the very thing that we're criticizing, right? Number two, we must avoid the genetic fallacy in these discussions. What do I mean by the genetic fallacy? Now, this fallacy means that a position is rejected or an argument is position is rejected or, or whatever it might be is rejected as valid simply because of its origin. The source is bad. Therefore, what that person is saying or the arguments that are being presented can't be true, can't be valid. It's irrelevant, right? That it's a logical fallacy. It's very easy to do. And it, unfortunately, it is all too common. Um, we have to do the work to fine tune or cut these, you know, to borrow James White's, the dividing line, find that dividing line uh, between the good and the bad, throw out the bad and keep the good, right? What comports the scripture, what does not? We have to avoid that. Um, but unfortunately on this side with, on, on Jeff's side, we see this genetic fallacy being used constantly. I mean, an example of this that we see just this week, if you follow Owen Strand on on Twitter, who is Jeff's, uh, the dean at, at Jeff Johnson Seminary. Um, Jeff is Owen's boss. Uh, he said in a tweet on the 8th of April, he said, quote, I say this in love. Those celebrating Aquinas have an exemplary, as an exemplary teacher of God's word, are playing with fire. Aquinas taught sacramental salvation, baptismal regeneration, forgiveness through indulgences, and more, end quote. So that's a genetic fallacy. Aquinas said these things, so we should just throw him out. He's not, we shouldn't be celebrating him as a very teacher. He's dangerous. He should be avoided because he taught these things. Even if he did say things that are actually true and, and biblical and maybe could be helpful, right? So we have to be careful not to fall into that. Uh, number three, we must have a proper understanding of what Sola Scriptura actually is, right? If we don't understand what Sola Scriptura actually is, it's going to be next to impossible to understand those things that are contrary to it and identify what those things are. It's very hard to find the bad when you don't know what the good is. You have no clue what to compare um, a particular view to and compare to a certain standard of what it should be, then you're not going to really know, you're not going to know at all whether it's bad. You're not going to. So we need to understand what Sola Scriptura is um, as we're going into these discussions. So let's dive in. Let's dive into uh, chapter five of his book. Chapter five of his book. So he says this, and I and and also I'm not planning to go through the entire chapter in this book either, but I want to hit some points that I think are important. So I'm not going through the whole book, and I'm not going line by line through the chapter. Um, I think I'm capturing the essence of what Jeff is saying, at least enough to be able to um, refute his core arguments, or at least the core argument that he's bringing on Greek philosophy. So he opens up in chapter five. These are the first words in the, in the chapter. Quote, what more do we need than the words of scripture that warn against looking to the philosophy of the so-called wise men of this world? As the apostle Paul wrote, in his epistle to the Colossians, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, Colossians 2.8. And of the Corinthians, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 1 Corinthians 1.20, end quote. And that's from page 43 of the Kindle edition. 
you know, Colossians 2.8 is a favorite, uh, it's a favorite proof, proof text. And I say that with air quotes. So those who are listening on audio, it's, it's a proof text, quote unquote, uh, that's utilized by that side to criticize uh, Greek philosophy, to criticize it um, in terms of its uh, being mingled with theology, even in a proper way, right? So the question is, in this particular passage here, is Paul actually forbidding uh, utilizing philosophy in total, right? Now let's look at Colossians uh, 2 verse 8 and look at some commentary on it. Um, I want to read from Aquinas. Aquinas actually has a commentary on Colossians, and particularly on this verse, which I uh, think is very helpful here. Um, so I want to read a little bit of this to hopefully bring some context. It says, uh, Aquinas says, but how are they being deceived? One who deceives another must have something which seems reasonable and something which is not really so. So first, Paul shows the basis of this seeming reasonableness. It is based on two things, the first being the authority of the philosophers. And about this, he says, according to human tradition, that is according to what is handed down by some basing themselves on their own judgment. The Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath, Psalm 94.11. The second source of an apparent reasonableness are the contrivances of reason. That is when a person wishes to measure or judge about the things of faith according to the principles of things and not by divine wisdom, and many are deceived in this way. So Aquinas is laying out here what the qualification means that Paul is talking about here in Colossians 2, because Paul does give us a qualification. Paul doesn't just broad brush philosophy and say, well, you know, we just throw it out. He doesn't even pick a specific type of philosophy. It's any philosophy that does not comport with what we find in Christ and which by implication, necessary consequence means scripture, right? So it's putting our own reason as the standard instead of letting scripture rule. It doesn't mean that Greek philosophy as a whole is necessarily thrown out on that, right? As there might be things in there that do comport to this rule of Christ being the head and cons uh, being consistent with scripture, uh, even if they are found in a pagan worldview. And they... And it doesn't mean that we throw it out completely. But Jeff will seek to apply this to essentially all Greek philosophy. He doesn't make a qualification uh, between, um, you know, some kind of uh, philosophy that might be said by a Greek philosopher here and then uh, by another Greek philosopher over here. It's There's no room for any usage of Greek philosophy. Paul does not accept it in any way. And he tries to use Colossians 2 as a way to uh, to prove his point. So moving on here. Um, let's look at Colossians 2 in greater detail. So what is the context that Paul is uh, laying out here, right? What is the context? So Paul spends chapter 2 really laying out um, what he's primarily referring to when he talks about um, those philosophies that don't comport with Christ, right? He's really referring to the pagan religious understandings that were coming against the church, the, the, the basic principles of the world that's used in verse 8 of Colossians and also verse 20. Um, 
it's really being applied in the sense of the legalistic regulations that were restricting the believers um, in things such as what they could eat, touch, etc. Right? Paul said, "Don't be uh, bound by the elemental principles of the world." Right? Don't do that. And he got done essentially saying what those things were in Colossians uh, chapter two, uh, verse eight. Right. So we we have to let the context speak as to what Paul is actually talking about when he's talking about um, pagan philosophy. Um, so the primary application is legalistic um, under rules or legalistic uh, restrictions put on Christians, because that would be a form of philosophy that is pagan, that is not comporting with Christ, and it's putting a human understanding um, into the scriptures themselves, right? So we, we have to be very careful to make sure that we're understanding what Paul is primarily talking about, because I haven't heard this discussed when uh, this proof text is thrown around. It's just, oh, let's just apply this to Greek philosophy, or let's apply this to pagan philosophy uh, in general, or something like that, um, but not properly qualifying what Paul is actually saying. So I think it's very important that we do that. Um, now, I do think it has application beyond just the legalistic uh, rules that are found um, that Paul lays out. Uh, I want to be very clear on that, but I think we have to be careful not to jump and say that it's primarily something else, right? The secondary application is the primary application, and we're just going to quote it as a proof text as if that is uh, the primary meaning of what Paul is saying. So be very careful about that. Okay. Um, at the, the end of the day, pagan philosophy is not to be the standard by which uh, we view life, by which we uh, uh, view God, those those, and I'm referring to philosophies that uh, do not comport with the scriptures. We have to be very careful. So I think that there is application here that we can find in Colossians 2.8. Just need to make sure that we understand its primary application. And that's why we have to focus on that qualification that Paul brings, not according to human tradition, right? And this is where we have to be really careful, right? Paul doesn't say, well, Greek philosophy as a whole should be rejected, or philosophy in general, right? But only those philosophies that are contrary to Christ, that are contrary to the word of God, that require us to see the world through pagan eyes and not through how God has declared in his word, right? And this is going to inherently create nuance in the umbrella of Greek philosophy. And we'll see this when we discuss Acts chapter 17, so the question becomes, you know, how do we know what philosophy is according to human understanding and that which comports with scripture, right? And this is really where we have to do the work. Again, it's a lot easier to just throw out an entire position because I don't like the source or because the source is bad than to actually do the work of nuancing those teachings that are good and helpful and can uh that God has revealed through natural revelation to even pagans who do see what God has done, even if they're inconsistent with themselves. Uh, and, and we have to figure out how to do that. Um, and then find those views that are not according to scripture and we don't utilize uh, those in a positive way. So we have to be very, very careful about these things. So this is where we have to do the work. And this is where we have to do the work. So if we if we see something that is consistent with special and natural revelation, ultimately scripture, 
Uh, that's found among pagan philosophers, then it is appropriate to use as long as it's qualified properly. Okay? It is possible for a position or a philosophy uh, to have a false premise, but a true conclusion. Right? It, it seems that the other side likes to say, well, they have a false premise, therefore their conclusions are bad or irrelevant or untrue, and we should just throw them out. No, we're, we're men. We can be inconsistent. We can have true conclusions, but false premises, right? We're not God. We're not perfect. We're not perfectly consistent. We change. We are mutable. God does not change. He's immutable, and he always speaks the truth. So we can be inconsistent. So we have to keep that in mind as well. And we have to find that which comports with Christ. We have to find that which comports with Christ. And I want to give a a philosophical example here, and this might, um, you know, stick with me. This might be a little heady, but I, I want to give a, a real world example, um, kind of an exhibit a, a case in point to show that uh, we can utilize philosophical understandings from a pagan philosopher in that one, those concepts are actually found in scripture. And number two, we utilize them all the time in our language and when we're talking about scripture. So I want to go to uh, the great demonized philosopher, uh, Aristotle, a Greek philosopher, and I want to talk about his four causes, okay? I want to talk about his four causes. So he has, and this is from uvm.edu. So he has, Aristotle has four material causes, or four causes. He has the material cause, efficient cause, formal cause, and final cause, and I want to talk about the efficient cause in the final cause here, because uh, I think this is relevant to what we're talking about. We use uh, these concepts all the time, right? We talk about it, an efficient cause. An efficient cause is that um, is what makes the form of a thing, right? When God created creation, when God created the world, when God created us, he created us as we are. He is the efficient cause of all things that exist in an ultimate sense, in a primary cause sense, right? This is the the efficient cause that we see. Now, if you're talking about secondary causes and uh, efficient relative causes, that would be like if I make a chair with my hands or I, I carve a chair, then I am the efficient cause of that chair, relatively speaking, from a secondary cause perspective. And we see this philosophical, metaphysical concept laid out clearly in Scripture. Um, again, going back to Colossians, you look at Colossians 1.16, for instance, um, both the ultimate efficient cause of God creating the world, Christ is the creator of all things, right? And the final causes of creation um, are laid out in one verse, Right, that indicate that these things are seen in creation itself. Everything must have a cause that caused it to be the form that it is. And given God made it, it must have a purpose. Right. So you see efficient causation and final causation. And this is embedded in the created order and clearly being revealed to Aristotle through natural revelation. God, he's, he, Romans chapter one is on full display here. Right. Aristotle is seeing. God's created order, and he's seeing how they work, and he's just systematizing it, right? He's, he's systematizing it. And then you have the final causation, right? The final causation, that is the why or the purpose of a thing, right? 
And we use this all the time. Why was something done? Why was something created? Right. It's called the final cause. I made, for instance, I made this chair to make me money through selling to potential buyers in a, in a mall shop, for instance. Right. That's the final cause of this chair. The efficient cause is me creating it. The, for, the final cause is me uh, wanting to make money off of it. Right. I made it for this purpose. That's the final causation. Now, is this u- uniquely Aristotelian? No. No, we use these concepts all the time in our own language and um, as it's found in scripture, you know, for Christians, we're we're utilizing this language all the time because it's found in natural revelation, it's embedded in creation, and we see it in scripture, and I think that's uh, why we use it. Another place that we can see this, Romans 11.36, right? For from him, to him, and through him are all things, right? God is the efficient cause. Everything comes from him, right? Everything is to him. That's the final cause. It's for his glory, right? That is the uh, final cause of his creation. So that means that these concepts that Aristotle systematized are necessarily contained in the scripture by virtue of them following the expressed assertions of scripture as to the propose, uh, the purpose of creation as well as its beginning, as we've seen in Colossians 1.16 and Romans 11.36. So if we're to be consistent with the 1677 London Baptist Confession, then we have to come to this conclusion, right? And if we're ultimately, if we're being consistent with what the scripture is revealing, then we have to come to this conclusion that these concepts are found in here, and they're not unique to Aristotle. They're unique to God's created order coming from God himself since he's the one who created all things and all things are made for him and his you know all for his glory and aristotle is just seeing those things in natural revelation so this is this is just a one example of that we can point to to see how these things are embedded in scripture and natural revelation and yet can be used without throwing away the entire system simply because aristotle was a pagan philosopher Okay, we have to be very careful, very, very careful about that. So moving on, uh, Jeff says, those who think the Apostle Paul appealed to Greek philosophy in his Mars Hill address, now we're jumping to Acts 17, uh, he, he starts talking about that. Uh, Greek philosophy in his uh, Mars Hill address failed to realize that Paul dismantled the foundational presupposition of Greek philosophy in this address, end quote. And he does talk in this chapter, he basically gives an overview of the Athens um, encounter that Paul had in Acts 17 at Mars Hill with the philosophers. Um, He goes on to say, he talks about where uh, Paul quotes one of the pagan philosophers. He says, in the process of declaring who this God is, Paul cited one of their poets, Eratus. It appears that Paul did this to demonstrate the inherent inconsistency and the eternal absurdity of their own pagan worldview. And this is referring to verse 28 of Acts 17. Okay, so at this point in the chapter, Paul has laid out who this unknown God was. If you remember in Acts 17, um, Paul referred to the unknown God, right, that they were worshiping, right? They were talking about the unknown God. And he expressly says that they worship him, ironically enough, Uh, which is actually kind of interesting. He says that they worship the one they don't know and that Paul is revealing it to them now, 
right? This is in verse 23 of Acts 17. And what does this mean? It means they worship God ignorantly. And I'm going to uh, read some John Gill here. John Gill's Bible commentary is one of the best sources that you can use for studying scripture. Very helpful. Don't agree with everything John Gill taught, um, but uh, his Bible commentary is an excellent resource in uh, the study of the scriptures. But when he's talking about here in Acts 17, John Gill says, which could not be said by him of any other deity. God is unknown. God is an unknown God to those who have only the light of nature to guide them. For though it may be known by it that there is a God and that there is but one and somewhat of him may be discerned thereby, yet the nature of his essence and the perfections of his nature and the unity is being are very little and not truly and commonly understood and the persons in the Godhead, not at all and still less God in Christ, whom to know is life eternal. Hence the Gentiles are described as such who know not God. Wherefore, if he is worshipped by them at all, it must be ignorantly. Right? So this means they know God by the light of nature. Again, this is a Romans 1 uh, reference, clearly. They know him from the light of nature. God has revealed himself, and they are without excuse. There's nowhere they can hide and say, well, I didn't, I didn't know that God existed. I didn't know about God. Uh, right, so they're talking here about the unknown God that they don't really know through special revelation, but they worship ignorantly because God has revealed himself in creation. They don't have the full story because of the lack of special revelation. And then Paul lays out a theology proper in Acts 17 to help those pagan philosophers understand who this unknown God is and then he proceeds to borrow from one, actually two of their philosophers, uh, to prove his point, not merely or necessarily uh, to do it as Jeff pointed out, which he said, quote, to demonstrate the inherent inconsistency in the internal absurdity of their own pagan worldview, end quote. And, and this is one of the most, I think, striking observations when reading Jeff, is that he leaves no room for Paul to acknowledge some common ground, in some sense, between the pagan what the pagan philosopher said that he quotes and Paul's meaning behind the application of the pagan philosopher. You got to remember, Paul applies these quotes directly to God. He doesn't go over here and say, well, it only means this and I'm just completely um, ditching it over here it has nothing to do with what I'm saying. There's no common ground. No, he applies these quotes directly to God himself. Um, and that is absolutely significant. And Jeff writes that often here for some reason. He writes it off. Jeff says, quote, by citing the line, for we are indeed his offspring. This is, side note, this is verse 28. For we indeed his offspring, Paul showed the utter folly of idol worship. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, verse 29. Clearly, graven images are the byproduct of the creativity and imagination of men. And it does not make sense for men to worship something they created because it is in him we live and move and have our being. Verse 28, it is not rational for us to worship graven images that depend on us for their existence rather than worshiping God on whom we depend for our existence, end quote. So this is, this is where it gets really interesting. Um, so he's basically saying here, he's saying that when Paul is quoting this pagan philosopher, he's not saying that uh, there's any good use for this here. He's, you, in terms of actually integrating it with theology, 
but he's using it only to show the utter folly of idol worship. He's using it to undermine their, uh, their quote worldview or their uh, understanding of God and their understanding of the world and their pagan worship. That's all that he's doing here, right? He's not utilizing this in a positive way that says we should be able to integrate some of these concepts into a theological system. Okay. Because this language that Eratus is using in, and this is the, just to be clear, this is the poet that is being quoted in verse 28, the first one anyways, for we are indeed his offspring. That is from the pagan, whoops, bumping my mic here. That is from the pagan philosopher or pagan poet, Eratus. Okay. And he's applying this directly to God. And, and I, again, I, as I said, I, this is very important here. He applies this directly to God. Okay. And the context of this quote is in relation to Zeus. And Jeff talks about this in his book. And he actually has a section from Eratus in his book, in this chapter, that clearly sees this line as being used in the context of talking about the god Zeus, right? This is not referring to the god of the Bible, it's referring to Zeus. Yet Paul applies this directly to God. He applies this directly to God and uh, makes it clear that we are all the offspring of God, right? Meaning we are all his creation. Yeah, And, and so he's taking a pagan philosophical concept um, since it's being applied to Zeus and applying that concept to God and saying essentially that this the the essential meaning of what Eratus is saying applies to God as well. Saying, look, your your philosophers say this about Zeus, implying this to God. We are indeed the offspring of God, right? So that's that's very um that's very important to realize. So he, Jeff is really just limiting the application of what Paul is doing, I think, to avoid Paul clear's application of displaying that that common ground um, in terms of concepts that we see here between um, a pagan philosopher and uh, the Christian uh, the Christian view. Notice what John Gill says um, in his assertion on verses 28 and 29 in his commentary. He says, the offspring of, of Jove, says Eratus, which the apostle applies to the true Jehovah, the creator of all men, by whom and after whose image they are made, and so are truly his offspring, upon which the apostle argues as follows. In the sense before given, for the apostle is not here speaking of himself and other saints as being the children of God by adoption and by regenerating grace, in faith in Christ Jesus, but as men in common with others and with these Athenians. That's very important. Paul is trying to show, look, you guys, not only am I the offspring of God, or we are his creation, right? You are his creation. You are his creation. Just like your pagan poet said that you are the offspring of Zeus, we are indeed the offspring of God. All of us are. We're the, we're the creation of God. That's how Paul is applying this. He's, it's John Gill says, which the apostle applies to the true Jehovah, the creator of all men. Right? He's applying this to God. And this is key because Jeff wants us to think that Paul's usage in no way indicates support of any Greek philosophy. Paul clearly is seeing some kind of common ground here and some benefit 
to utilizing this in a positive sense, not merely to unmantle their understanding of the world and their pagan uh, philosophies. No, he's doing so in a positive sense that shows some sort of common ground here that there are good things that can be utilized from that worldview, to, bar to use that term loosely, from that view in order uh, to make a theological point as it relates to the true Jehovah, right? So he's redeeming pagan language and pagan concepts, right? And applying them to the one true God and using that against them, right? That's very important. Now, another thing that is interesting, and I think this is really where it takes the cake. And when I, I, I think when I first saw that this was the case, I didn't pick up on this right away. When I read this the first time, didn't pick up on it. And it, it took me, as I was studying for this episode, it took me that much, I think reading it maybe a few times, to really, for it to hit me. I was like, wait a minute, what? So Jeff seems to think that Paul only quotes Eretus in Acts 17, and nobody else, no other pagan philosopher, no other outside sources, he just quotes Eretus. However, when it comes to the phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, Jeff accepts this as divine truth. Let's go back to what he said. He said, quote, and it does not make sense for men to worship something they created because it is in him we live and move and have our being. Verse 28, it is not rational for us to worship graven images that depend on us for their existence rather than worshiping God on whom we depend for our existence. What is incredible here is that the reference in verse 28 that Jeff uses is a direct quotation from a pagan philosopher named Epimenides. And I, I don't know if I pronounce that correctly. Um, so Jeff is willing to reject Greek philosophy on the one hand when Paul expressly applies it to God, while at the same time accepting it when Paul expressly applies it to God, even if he does so seemingly unwittingly, which I, I think is probably what it is. He, he just doesn't know. Um, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong, which I'm willing to give him that much grace that he just didn't know. <laughs> and it was a mistake. Um, but I wonder if Jeff would change his mind on accepting this verse or the concepts found in this statement, in him we live and move our, our being, if he knew this was a direct quotation from a pagan philosopher. Um, and you know, if this man's scholarly credibility can't be called into question by this, uh, I don't know what will. I mean, he's already come under... Uh, intense scholarly scrutiny for this book, you know, something like this is, is I didn't have to go far to figure, figure this out. So, and the, he's the head of a seminary and a pastor. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, he also uses the ESV and he expressly says that he uses this version at, in the beginning of his book. Um, I think it's in the copyright page in the, the ESV expressly separates the epimony, Epimenides, again, I don't know if I'm saying that right, the Epimenides quote from the rest of the text in spacing and quotation marks, and it even has a note for the quote saying probably from Epimenides of Crete. And if you look in the NIV, you can also see it will, it says definitively that this is from Epimenides um, of Crete. It's a quote from him. Um, so he should have checked his sources. But it's just extremely ironic, given that the entire argument that is being utilized here is that Greek philosophy is bad, 
that Jeff Johnson should, or that uh, Paul is not saying that Greek philosophy is is uh, useful uh, in any way in a positive sense that we should be using it um, or adopting it into our theological systems where it is consistent with scripture, um, but then just adopts a quotation and concept from a pagan philosopher, just, just soaks it in. It's very ironic. Um, so, and I think it just proves my point that you can do that be consistent with solar scriptura, has the scripture as your final authority, and still utilize concepts in and adopt them into a theological system as long as they are flowing necessarily from the express authority and express scriptures. That That's really the, what the point is um, here, that sola scriptura does not forbid these things, and Paul didn't either. Right. Paul didn't either. So Jeff is essentially doing the very thing that he unwittingly, it seems, but doing the very thing that he is railing against. Um, and and the, the irony is strong. He's just proving our point. He's just proving our point. So Jeff sums up uh, chapter five. He says, quote, in some, the Apostle Paul was not an advocate of Greek philosophy. Not at all. If Aristotle was so important. Why didn't Paul point Christians to his writings? Instead, Paul did the opposite. He told Christians to beware of the philosophies and traditions of men, Colossians 2.8. In fact, he claimed that philosophy was not needed to know God, for God has clearly revealed himself to all mankind, Romans 1. Moreover, it was the wisdom of God, Paul said, that makes it impossible for men, if they do not, in fear, submit to what they already know to be true, to come to a proper knowledge of God on their own so-called wisdom, 1 Corinthians one twenty one, end quote. Now you can see Jeff is saying that there is no room, no room whatsoever um, for Paul to be an advocate for Greek philosophy. There is no advocate uh, for Greek philosophy at all, even though Paul used it in a positive sense, applying it back to God and seeing these concepts as found consistent with the scriptures, with Christian teaching. And that's not, again, that's not to say that all Greek philosophy or all pagan philosophy can be used, but it's finding those discerning lines and taking, we can take those things that are consistent with scripture, with scripture being our authority, final authority, and throwing out the rest. And we see Paul doing that here, using those things that are good to help with his argument and integrating them into a Christian worldview in a positive sense so that those principles can truly be said of God, even though they were quoted by a pagan philosopher, right? That we can utilize those things. And again, Paul was not an advocate of Greek philosophy at all, but then Jeff is in seemingly unwittingly advocating Greek philosophy by utilizing that Epimenides quote um, and accepting it as gospel. <laughs> It's very, uh, it's very inconsistent, very inconsistent. Um, he says, you know, going back here, he says, if Aristotle was so important, why didn't Paul appoint Christians to his writings? Um, that is an irrelevant statement. Um, it, it's an argument from silence, so it's moot, right? Just because Paul didn't say uh, that or point to Aristotle express, explicitly uh, in, in the scriptures, that means that he was uh, speaking out against Aristotle. That's not a good argument. Argument from silence can be helpful at times, especially where you 
uh, are expecting. Like if we expected Paul to do that, then it would be valid, but we don't. The scriptures are not a philosophical textbook of all philosophies that exist on the planet. It gives us general principles that we are to use um, to help to work through these philosophies, right? As we've seen in Colossians 2 already, right? But in this case, it, it it's a moot argument. It's an argument from silence that's not valid. Uh, it's no more valid than thinking that a math textbook or a biology textbook should be rejected simply because Paul didn't point us to the writings of famous mathematicians or biologists as a source of biblical knowledge um, or any kind of knowledge. It, it, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's irrelevant, right? It's a very weak argument. Yeah, we don't expect Paul to point us to those things because he's, reject, he's not rejecting them, right? Philosophy, biology, physics, they're all in the same category. All are created by God and find their place in his natural revelation, right? The practices qua practices. Sure, there are pagan influences in biology. There are pagan influences in um, in physics, whatever it might be. But the, the principles, the basic consistent principles that are there that are found in creation are part of God's natural revelation. And man can twist them, right? Um, but we take the good and throw out the bad. Yeah, and we have to remember too um, that Jeff is Jeff teaches in his book, his first book, um, "Failure of Natural Theology." If you jump back in chapter one on page fourteen, he talks about the instant, the immediacy of natural revelation. He doesn't believe in any kind of uh, mediums. Um, that, you know, any kind of real mediums, right? It's an instantaneous understanding of who God is. He says on page 14, the fourth attribute of natural revelation is its instantaneousness. There are no time lapse between God speaking and man understanding what God has spoken. All men have an immediate awareness of God. And, and he goes on to say, moreover, no discursive thinking, no syllogism, no inductive or deductive reasoning, no instruction, no argumentation, and no rational proof is needed for man to have an immediate awareness of God in nature. So he believes in the, the instantaneous um, awareness of God. It's somehow innate uh, in us um, apart from uh, any kind of medium. That's, that's what immediate means. Immediate doesn't just mean speed, but it's the lack of a medium, right? Anything that's in the way that goes between the thing being proposed and the thing receiving the thing proposed, right? It's immediate. It's instantaneous, right? So he's denying mediums um, as it relates to the knowledge of God. We just know God exists apart from any created mediums. It, that's how I take that anyways. Um, and I wonder how the writer of Ecclesiastes would take that understanding um, that philosophy was not needed to know God, given our end goal in life is to fear God and keep his commandments, which is a philosophy that is required to know God, right? Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and I did a podcast episode on this, um, on philosophy found in scripture and going through Ecclesiastes, um, maybe earlier this year, I think it was. I don't have the title with me on top of my head. But um, that can provide some further backdrop on that. Um, but closing out, you know, I've gone kind of gone a million miles an hour here, but I hope this is helpful. I hope this is helpful. 
Sola Scriptura is where we stand, and I choose to stand upon it in, in its historical understanding. I believe that's consistent with Scripture, that uh, what was taught, and I believe that um, this is the understanding of the Reformed Confessions in terms of Scripture, that Scripture is our final authority of faith and practice, not our only authority, final authority, ultimate authority, and these secondary authorities can be helpful including some Greek philosophy that may not have the best origins, but comports with scripture that can be helpful in fleshing out some of these things that we find in scripture, right? Not that we're submitting scripture to Greek philosophy, but we see those things as necessary consequences, if indeed they are true and consistent with the expressed teachings um, of scripture. So. I hope this has been helpful in bringing out uh, maybe another perspective to the discussion, another take on Sola Scriptura in looking at Jeff's book. Um, you know, my my goal is not to, again, my goal is not to beat a dead horse. Uh, I know this has been talked about quite a bit um, by other brothers, um, but I hope it's it's beneficial. And I see there are some comments here in the comments section. Uh, Evan Rojas um you said, through philosophy, uh, as many have mistakenly imagined that philosophy is here condemned by Paul, we must point out what he means by this term per Colossians Yeah, that's exactly right. We have to qualify what Paul is saying um, when it talks about philosophy. He's not broad brushing the, the practice or the principle of philosophy. He clarifies it expressly. And you say, now, in my opinion, he means everything that men contrive of themselves when wishing to be wise through means of their own understanding and that not without a spacious pretext of reason. Um, so yeah, it's, it's basically pagan philosophy or whatever philosophy it might be that s seeks to understand. It could be whatever it might mean through your understanding and not backward, not the proper way through the eyes of scripture, looking at the philosophy from the other side. Uh, and then David Roosh, uh, hope you're doing well, brother. Good to see you. Uh, you said, true conclusions of false premises is one good reason to read secular literature in general, like fictional secular novels, for example. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because you might have, and generally your fiction is not going to come from a Christian worldview. And even, and I, again, I use that term carefully because I know worldview has, as a as we know it today, has pagan philosophical uh, roots and I'm not going to be inconsistent, and I think that it's it's a fine word to use as long as it's qualified, right? Um, I'm using it uh, in that in this specific sense here and trying to qualify as it relates to its origins. But you you talk about true conclusions, false premises. Yeah, we look at a a pagan who might write a a fictional novel, right? But we don't throw out the novel because of its source. We see the conclusions or the product that this pagan has made might be good and, and, and helpful and enjoyable as it is ultimately created by God and comes from God ultimately. Um, but understanding that the, the pagan is going to have their own prejudices and they're going to be suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and things like that. So that's a that's a very good example, because if we don't see it that way, if we don't see a distinction between the premise of or the the source of these things and the product and or conclusions 
then we have to throw if, if there is no distinction, then we have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We have to or we're going to be adopting their premises uh, instead of seeing a real distinction that someone can be inconsistent. Someone can have a false premise, but end up in the right place. Right. Um, yeah. So I hope this episode has been helpful. Um, and Lord willing, every uh, we will see you guys next week. We won't be streaming live on here. Like I said, we'll be on another brother's podcast. So um, if that brother is good, I'll post um, I'll post the episode on the audio side on anchor.fm um, and I'll try to get it up on our YouTube side as well and maybe pop it on Facebook um, so you can listen to it from our channel and stuff. Um, but anyways, thanks everyone for joining me today. I hope again, I hope this has been helpful, beneficial, edifying, giving you some uh, some knowledge to be able to address this issue more and and uh, deal with this issue in a proper way. But with that, everyone have a great rest of your weekend and Lord say tomorrow. And, uh, we hope to see you next week. All right. Take care. Bye.